Access Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, Elizabeth Warren's plan to jail CEOs and an upstart football league falls down. But first, YouTube's House of Horrors. So for years now, tech critics and politicians have been piling on Facebook for its inability to appropriately monitor content, particularly things like hate speech or false information that could be harmful to either individuals or society at large. But Google-owned YouTube, the world's top video streaming site, has somehow skated largely under the radar. Well, at least until now, following a deep investigation by Bloomberg that finds the company not only turned a blind eye to problematic videos, but actually created an algorithm that encouraged users to view them. So to be clear, we're not talking here about somebody criticizing Trump or Hillary, even with false information, or about how they caught the biggest fish. No, we're talking about things like anti-vaccination videos using scientifically debunked information in the midst of a measles outbreak, or videos calling the Parkland shooting a hoax and the students, quote, crisis actors. We're even talking about sexually explicit videos that get recommended to kids who are watching cartoons. And again, this isn't by accident or the unintentional byproduct of what happens when a video platform scales so big so fast that it can't keep up with the uploads. No, this was intentional, a program, an algorithm to increase engagement for the purpose of hitting viewership goals. But CEO Susan Wojcicki hesitant to, in the words of one former employee, quote, put her fingers on the scale. And little was more engaging than outrage, uh, except perhaps for being recommended a video that promised to outrage you even more. It's the sort of artificial intelligence that only a calculator could love. In 20 seconds, we'll go deeper with the author of that Bloomberg piece, Mark Bergen. But first, this. The Equity Fund Resources Group at BridgeBank is a central hub for the venture capital and private equity communities. Offering banking services for funds, partners, and their portfolio companies, BridgeBank's financial solutions are designed for the entire innovation ecosystem and include creative credit solutions, robust treasury and cash management capabilities, and a suite of international banking products. BridgeBank is a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. We're joined now by Bloomberg reporter Mark Bergen. So, Mark, why did you start working on this piece in the first place? I have been reading, and I'm sure you have too, for years, this criticism from the outside about YouTube, um, about sort of its destructive qualities, or that it has a recommendation engine that, that feeds people into filter bubbles, that it promotes conspiracy theories. I had a little bit of sense about what the people inside Google and YouTube think about it, but but I really wanted to understand what it was like for the people that were wrestling with this issue inside the company. Am I correct in saying that, that what you kind of learned was not so much that senior executives turned a blind eye, but, but they kind of encouraged a system whereby problematic videos were really kind of thrust more upon users? Yeah, I think, you know, consistently people told me this. There was never a malicious intent from the executives. It was more of the theme of sort of paralysis, right? That they didn't really know how to act and they were afraid that any type of major changes would, would upset this balance. So, yeah, YouTube has effectively like these three different constituents that make up the company, right? They have advertisers and, and the creators and the users. And the past two years, they've had this major, major revolt from advertisers. They've had constant complaints from creators. The money they make on from YouTube that they rely on their income was going away. And the result is that YouTube never was able to change with the sort of guiding North Star, as Susan Wojcicki called it, of engagement that they use. And, and they've been trying the past couple of years to turn towards something called the responsible growth, 
um, but it's not clear that they haven't certainly explained that to shareholders and the public or, or really to their employees. And that responsible growth, the way they explained to you, or at least the way you reported it, is almost that there's kind of a survey, kind of a, was this helpful? You see this at the end of YouTube, you know, was this helpful? Was this good? That doesn't necessarily mean it was responsible or not responsible. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a delicate political situation, right? It's We didn't really go into this in the piece, but certainly after Christchurch, there was a lot of conversations about that YouTube has been fairly effective in taking down Islamic extremism on its platform. And, and they've been, it's the same thing that they set up as a very powerful AI to take down child pornography. And there are people that are asking, why can't they do the same thing with, with say, white supremacy? The AI, the way you talk about it, and, and you, you quote somebody who's a critic of the company, but you quote somebody who's saying that right. the AI, the algorithm they use, is basically an addiction engine. That, that if I'm a YouTube person, the next one, yeah, and, and kind of that outrage feeds that addiction. The more outraged I am, the more likely I am to watch the next video. Is that an accurate understanding still of how YouTube's working? So my understanding is that they've been trying desperately to, to change that the past couple of years. And you can see there's a paper, the DeepMind, which is another part of, of Google and Alphabet put out about filter bubbles. I think they have their AI team addressing this. You know, the criticism is that they were sort of late. Right? This was 2016. Like Facebook, they weren't really thinking about these issues. If you look at that paper on the neural net for their recommendation engine, it talks a lot about spam. It talks a lot about clickbait. There's no mention of misinformation. Um, there's no mention of sort of the filter bubbles that, that a recommendation engine can create. One of the things kind of the most interesting in here is how you talk about how lawyers would tell certain YouTube employees. They, they wouldn't write it down, you say, but they would tell them, I guess, in hallway conversations that, that you know, if you see something that's questionable, don't touch it. And, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of going back years ago when I would write and we would have, you know, comments, blog comments. And, and the recommendation from lawyers always was don't remove any of them, because if you remove one that is considered really problematic, then you theoretically have liability for all of them. Similar concept at YouTube? Yeah, I think that's a similar concept. There's probably also a little bit of morale building, right? Like, imagine if you're you're trying to build this um, thousands-plus-person organization and, and you're an engineer not dealing with the, the worst of the worst in the site. Um, I don't think that the executive team necessarily wants you to spend your time dwelling on this sort of issues. But there was that. I mean, the person I talked to framed it as sort of that they were tempted to do this, what, what they now call borderline content, right? So these are videos that don't violate their terms of service, but they wanted to come up with a third way of treating them differently. And that's what, what YouTube has struggled with and still struggles with. The anti-vaccination videos are a really perfect example. And you write that some employees suggested, well, okay, when we have things like that, let's at the very, you know, keep them on the platform, but remove them from the recommendation engine. But that didn't happen. Yeah, I think, and you know, one of the points that YouTube would talk to me at least can reiterate is that how difficult this is, right? They have this massive, I don't know what the latest number they have, 450 million hours uploaded at an hour or something like that. You know, this massive video footage that is far too big for them to, even if they hire thousands of more content moderators. And I think there's a, the bigger issue here is the kind of gray lines, right? If you look at anti-vax content, a lot of those channels come from a video channel that's also just broadly about natural health. So I mean, it might be homeopathy. It might be something that's not necessarily labeled as a conspiracy, agreed upon as a conspiracy theory. And so YouTube is really careful to punish that because like I said, there's this delicate balance where they have, they depend on their creators to be happy to keep their site thriving. Mark, final question for you is a reportage question, which is, did you get the sense when you were speaking to particularly current YouTube employees, all of whom I, I think in the piece were anonymous or asked to keep their, their names out of it, mm -hmm. fearing perhaps retaliation. Did you get a sense that there was a lot of appetite to talk about this, to use you as a way to put pressure on their bosses, something they maybe either haven't been able to or have been too scared to do on their own internally? I can say there's a lot more appetite for Google, and it's a little bit in the weeds here, but you know, YouTube has been, for 13 years now, relatively 
relatively independent. Its, it's campus is in San Bruno, not in, in Mountain View. Um, I do get the sense that the people at Google are sort of pointing to YouTube and saying, you know, what the hell? Why, are you, why can't you solve this problem? This is something where the, the, you, Google has not been dragged into the mud as much as Facebook has. And if you look at Google, certainly the employees that work on search or advertising or Android, they are much more willing to, to point at YouTube and say, fix this problem. Mark Bergen of Bloomberg, thanks so much for joining us. My final two right after this. The equity fund resource group at BridgeBank is a central hub for the venture capital and private equity communities. Leveraging nearly two decades of expertise delivering solutions to emerging technology and growth companies, BridgeBank now offers services for funds, SBICs, and general partners including creative credit solutions, robust treasury management capabilities, and a suite of international banking services. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Be bold, venture wisely. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Massachusetts Senator and 2020 presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, who today will unveil proposed legislation to make it easier to criminally charge and jail big business executives. So this applies to execs of companies with at least a billion dollars in annual revenue and would cover such violations, quote, of any civil law if that violation affects the health, safety, finances, or personal data of 1% of the American population or 1% of the population of any state and quote. If an executive is convicted or pleads guilty or even settles, he or she could face up to a year in jail for the first violation and up to three years for the second. So why it matters isn't because it's going to become law, since it probably won't, but more because it reflects how there is still widespread anger in America over the lack of bankers and other business people who went to jail from the financial crisis and at big tech CEOs for privacy violations. And all of this looks ready to boil over into the presidential debates. Finally, the Alliance of American Football is dead just months after launch, and actually a pretty well-received launch at that, announcing yesterday that it will immediately cease operations. So this is the effort first announced last year with investments from venture capital firms led by Peter Thiel and Peter Chernin, which just a month or so ago received a $250 million bailout from Carolina Hurricanes owner Tom Dundon. So what happened? Well, first, there was just never enough money. Even that bailout, only 70 million of it came through. Second, the goal was to create a feeder system of young players for the NFL, but the two sides never came to a formal agreement. Third, and this might be the most important thing here, there is speculation that what Dundon really wanted wasn't the on-field product, but was some gaming app technology already developed by the AAF, and he didn't really much care about the games, thus deciding to shut it down when the going got tough. Next up, Vince McMahon's revived XFL, and we'll see if it can last longer either than its first incarnation or the AAF. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great National Chocolate Moose Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.